Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. What do you want to be when you grow up? It's a question we ask every little kid at one point or another, and we don't usually take the answers too seriously. What does a 10-year-old know about career options? Still, we ask anyway, and their answers give us a window into what's exciting them, what they're imagining. It helps us connect with them. At seven, Elizabeth Holmes, quote-unquote, designed a time machine, filling a notebook with detailed drawings of her project— so perhaps her relatives expected her to say she wanted to be an inventor. But that's not what she said. At just nine or ten years old, her large blue eyes wide, she stared seriously into the future and announced her dream. I want to be a billionaire. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from ParCast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we're following Elizabeth Holmes, a young entrepreneur determined to follow in the footsteps of her idol, Steve Jobs. She had to become a world-changing billionaire, even if getting there meant lying to investors and employees and firing anyone who told her no. Next week, we'll see how Elizabeth's lies start to spiral out of control, risking not just tens of millions of investment dollars, but the lives of real people. As the stakes get higher, so do the consequences. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to The Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. 
Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Imagine being the first person to ever send a payment over the internet. New things can be scary, and crypto is no different. It's new, but like the internet, it's also revolutionary. Making your first crypto trade feels easy with 24-7 support when you need it. Go to kraken.com and see what crypto can be. Not investment advice. Crypto trading involves risk of loss. Cryptocurrency services are provided to U.S. and U.S. territory customers by Payward Ventures, Inc. PVI DBA Kraken. Visit PVI's disclosures at kraken.com slash legal slash disclosures. Elizabeth Holmes's parents encouraged their daughter's precocious ambition from the start. It fit the narrative they wanted to tell about their family. A narrative that went back generations to the mid-1800s when Elizabeth's ancestor, Charles Louis Fleischmann, founded the Fleischmann Yeast Empire. By the turn of the 20th century, Charles' success as an entrepreneur had made his family some of the richest people in America. But by the time Elizabeth was born in 1984, much of that extraordinary wealth was gone. The Holmeses were simply regular wealthy, moving around between upscale communities in Washington, D.C., California, and Houston. And that wasn't good enough for Elizabeth's father, Christian. As a former family friend put it, he seemed to have a paradise-lost kind of a family mythology. Basically, he thought the Holmeses were supposed to be more important than they were. They deserved to be billionaires, and it was unfair that they weren't. Growing up hearing this extremely entitled message must have made little Elizabeth feel special. She was, according to her father's view of the world, better than other people. But his anger, his sense of injustice, that must have felt like pressure too. Pressure to prove how special she was to the whole world, to get back that lost home's paradise. Before we continue with Elizabeth's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. And there's plenty available on what happens when this kind of extremely high pressure is placed on children. Dr. Thomas Curran, an assistant professor of psychological and behavioral science at the London School of Economics, explains it this way. Young people internalize high parental expectations and depend on them for their self-esteem. And when they fail to meet them, as they invariably will, they'll be critical of themselves for not matching up. To compensate, they strive to be perfect. Of course, perfection is impossible, but the appearance of perfection is a more attainable goal. So as perfectionist children grow older, Curran says they can also become less conscientious. They focus on maintaining the appearance of perfection at the cost of real substance, at the cost of doing things thoroughly or the right way. By the time Elizabeth Holmes was starting to look at colleges, though, she was meeting all the high expectations around her. She was a straight-A student, and in the spring of 2002, she was accepted to Stanford University, her dream school. It was the perfect place to pursue the plan she'd come up with to become a billionaire and restore the glory of the home's name. Elizabeth was going to start a company, a Silicon Valley startup to be more specific. She wasn't sure what the startup would do yet, but she knew chemical engineering professor Channing Robertson would be a good mentor on her journey to figuring that out. Robertson has been called the face of Stanford's engineering department, But Elizabeth was more impressed by his extracurricular credentials. He'd served on the boards of multiple successful Silicon Valley startups. 
she knew if she could get him to like her, she'd have credibility with other Valley people, too. So Elizabeth enrolled in Robertson's Introduction to Chemical Engineering class and a seminar he taught on controlled drug delivery devices. But if he was going to be her mentor, she needed to log even more time with him. So she lobbied for a position in his research lab. Despite the fact that she was only a freshman, Robertson let her in. He was impressed by this driven, focused young woman. She was smart, and she had a poise and self-assurance that made her seem older than, well, than a teenager. She seemed to really believe in herself, which made him believe in her, too. Elizabeth's peers also noticed her confident attitude, and they were just as impressed as Robertson. She thrived socially, attending parties and even bagging a sophomore boyfriend. But these college rites of passage weren't as meaningful to Elizabeth as her work in the lab, as her relentless pursuit of her goals. In fact, she was starting to feel impatient with this whole process of getting an education, even just a few months in. Over winter break of her freshman year, her father asked her if she thought she'd get a Ph.D., a reasonable question considering many, if not most, chemical engineers pursue advanced degrees. But her response was blunt. She didn't want to waste time getting degrees. She wanted to make money. Never mind a Ph.D., even four years of undergrad was starting to feel too long especially when she looked out the doors of Stanford's dorms at the increasingly youthful founders flooding Silicon Valley with tech startups. They were considered all the more impressive because they were young. Elizabeth wanted to be like them, and she knew she could do it. She had to. Like her family had always told her, she was special. But she was getting older every single day. By the time she graduated from college, she would barely even qualify as a wonderkind. But there may be another reason Elizabeth was so eager to speed up her timeline. While she's never offered any details about the experience, she says she was sexually assaulted at Stanford. The psychological effects of sexual assault can be incredibly varied, according to Dr. Elizabeth Jeglick, a psychology professor at New York's John Jay College. But because survivors often feel control has been stripped from them during the assault, they can respond by seeking to reclaim control. Perhaps Elizabeth hoped that getting a company started ASAP would give her that sense of control, put her back on track for greatness. But before becoming one of those mythical Silicon Valley founders, Elizabeth needed to figure out what her company could sell. So she applied for a summer internship in Singapore, testing patients for SARS. Maybe she thought the experience would inspire her. In her usual high-achiever way, she got the job, and it did lead to a lightbulb moment. The lab used traditional methods to test for sickness, like swabs and syringes. These were slow, tedious, and dated, Elizabeth realized, but they were also part of a multi-billion dollar testing industry. So she would sell a new method of testing for disease. Not only would it make her rich, it would actually help people too. What could be better for showing the world she really did live up to the home's name? As soon as she got back from Singapore, Elizabeth locked herself in her bedroom at her parents' house and drew up designs for what this method might look like. It could be a patch, sort of like a nicotine patch, except once applied to a patient's arm, the science fiction-like device would simultaneously test for illness and then cure the illness by dispensing drugs. 
diagnostics and treatment all in one tiny device. Or that's what Elizabeth said to Channing Robertson when she got back to campus for the fall 2003 semester. And he was impressed. He wasn't sure it would actually work, but the idea was definitely imaginative, and it did address an outdated part of healthcare. Even more importantly, he was impressed by Elizabeth's determination. As he put it, I never encountered a student like this before of the 10,000s of students that I'd talked to, so I encouraged her to go out and pursue her dream. That was enough for Elizabeth. From there, everything started to happen very quickly. She dropped out of Stanford and filed the paperwork to start her business. Robertson became her first board member, publicly bestowing his stamp of approval. And in May of 2004, Shawnuck Roy, who'd just finished his PhD in Robertson's lab, joined her as her very first employee. At just 19 years old, Elizabeth Holmes was setting out to make all her dreams come true. She was going to change medicine, save lives, make the Holmes name matter again, and of course, become a billionaire. Now she just needed to convince the right people to bet on her. Coming up, Elizabeth goes looking for money. Hi, listeners, it's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com slash cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com cults. And on behalf of everyone here at ParCast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Now back to the story. Okay, so startups are a whole world of their own. So let me zoom out for a second and explain how the process of getting a company off the ground usually works. First, you need money. And the initial round of cash at a startup typically comes from so-called angel investors. These are high-risk investors who are essentially betting on a person. Because whatever the startup wants to sell is so early stage, it doesn't really exist as more than an idea. 
investors decide if a founder has what it takes to turn their concept into reality. Then they fund that person accordingly. So when 19-year-old Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford in 2004, she needed angel investors. And the first ones she found were her parents, who agreed to give her the money they'd saved for her college tuition. They weren't sure dropping out of college was the right move, but once Elizabeth explained exactly how lucrative the blood testing industry was, they couldn't say no. Even with her parents' generous contribution, Elizabeth still needed more money. Lots more. But if the Holmeses had lost much of their former wealth, they were still plenty rich in connections. So Elizabeth turned to her parents' friends, like Tim Draper. She'd grown up with Draper's daughter, but he wasn't just a family friend, and he wasn't just wealthy either. His grandfather was one of Silicon Valley's first venture capitalists, which is essentially someone who invests money in companies they think will grow in exchange for equity. Draper carried on the legacy, making valuable early investments in major 90s startups like Hotmail. After hearing Elizabeth's speech about her industry-shaking plans, he agreed to cut her a check for a million dollars. That was a meaningful chunk of cash. But like Professor Channing Robertson's approval, it also provided Elizabeth with cachet. If Draper believed she could get the job done, other people would too. And... They did. By the end of 2004, less than a year after she'd started her company, Elizabeth had collected $6 million, most of it from family and friends. They might not have known much about medical technology, but they did know about Draper's reputation. They also liked the sound of the profits Elizabeth suggested they could one day make. Plus, they'd be helping improve the healthcare industry for the better. It seemed like a no-brainer. Still, there were skeptics. In July of 2004, Elizabeth met with a venture capital firm specializing in medical technology investments, MedVenture Associates. She pitched her device to them. Standing in front of their reps, she was charming and was a natural at the kind of grand, sweeping rhetoric that ran Silicon Valley. Her idea was going to change healthcare and change the world, she pronounced, with all the grandeur and confidence of a true visionary. But as experts in medical technology, MedVenture Associates wanted to get pretty specific about the tech behind Elizabeth's invention. They wanted to understand exactly how it would work, the science behind the product. And that's when Elizabeth's demeanor changed. She got flustered. She hemmed and hawed. She didn't seem like she'd really thought this device through, or perhaps didn't have the expertise to make it a reality. They didn't invest but they weren't the only ones who didn't buy into Elizabeth's vision. Phyllis Gardner, a Stanford professor of medicine, was another early naysayer. Elizabeth came to her for exactly the medical expertise she didn't have herself. Gardner looked over the designs she'd drawn up, but after a quick assessment, she explained that the science didn't add up, not as Elizabeth was pitching it now. And she asked... Even if Elizabeth got the device to work, what made her think patients wanted to take doctors out of the test diagnosis process? That they would want to be tested and medicated all via a machine with no MD in sight? In Gardner's experience, people trusted doctors. They wanted conversations about treatment, not an automated process. In her eyes, it just wasn't a viable project. 
But Elizabeth wasn't ready to leave Gardner's office yet. Just like her friend and colleague Channing, just like Tim Draper, Gardner had experience and respect amongst Silicon Valley startup types. Elizabeth wanted her to get involved with the company somehow, perhaps if they shifted the product to address her concerns. But Gardner just brushed aside the bright-eyed teenager. In her eyes, Elizabeth was no different from the many eager, ambitious Stanford students who came to her with ideas every day. She was smart, like them, but she had barely finished her first year of college and didn't have the skills or knowledge to revolutionize healthcare, not at 19. So Elizabeth left Gardner's office empty-handed. Or maybe with a useful reality check. Elizabeth seems to have taken the feedback from MedVenture Associates and Phyllis Gardner and realized that maybe her initial idea wasn't quite as perfect as she'd assumed. But she wasn't going to give up. Not now, not after dropping out of Stanford and burning through her tuition money on her shiny new company. She'd already given it a high-tech-sounding name, Theranos, a blend of the words therapy and diagnosis. She'd just have to pivot, that was all. She'd simply throw out her test-and-treat patch idea and focus on the diagnostic side of the project instead. Now the patch would just do the testing. It would be easy. Except it turned out that wouldn't work either. Something she realized with the help of Seanuck Roy, that first employee she'd hired out of Robertson's lab. But luckily, Roy was smart and far more experienced with chemical engineering than she was. He helped her come up with a more realistic alternative. They'd make a portable blood testing box, which could run on a tiny sample of blood and could be used in patients' homes. Similar devices already exist to monitor blood glucose levels for diabetes patients. But if Theranos could take things further, use their box to run all the blood tests ordered by doctors, that would make a real difference. And it would be really marketable to pharmaceutical companies, for example. Patients in clinical trials could easily and regularly test their blood at home, and the device could beam results directly to their doctors, all without setting foot in a hospital. By late 2005, both Elizabeth and Roy were feeling good about the revisions to the invention. Elizabeth was riding the wave by hiring more and more people for her team. Less than two years after she got started, she had two dozen staff members, including some really smart, experienced scientists. Together, they managed to build a prototype of Theranos's box, which at that stage was called Theranos 1.0. Eventually, they called the thing the Edison, so to save on confusion, we'll stick with that name from here on out. Now, Elizabeth knew the prototype was more of a mock-up of what the technology would look like than a working example, but they would get there. They just needed a little more money. As it turned out, developing a medical device was expensive. A ballooning payroll, Silicon Valley rent, and expensive lab equipment were all burning through Elizabeth's first round of funding. Just one part of the Edison prototype, the cartridge where you inserted your blood for the machine to read, cost $200, and they ran through a lot of them. This all meant Elizabeth needed more investors. And now she needed to convince people who hadn't known her since childhood that she was a worthwhile bet, that she was a true, unique visionary. Once people saw that, they'd fund her company. 
then she'd have time to get the Edison to actually work. She'd disrupt the blood testing industry, and she'd prove that this whole bet had been the right choice, the right way to prove her worth. Perhaps that's why she started to change, in odd ways which did make her unique, or at least like Steve Jobs. She pitched her voice down to a deep baritone. She leaned into the magnetic quality of her large blue eyes and started to blink less and less. And she even began mimicking Jobs' founder uniform, a black Izzy Miyake turtleneck. Whether it was the voice or just her ever-improving rhetoric about how Theranos would change the world, Elizabeth's second hunt for money turned up gold. Namely, Don Lucas, a mega-investor in Silicon Valley, he's known for following his gut rather than interrogating the specifics of a given investment. And after listening to Elizabeth talk about everything her company could accomplish, staring into her unblinking blue eyes and hearing her talk about how much money they could all make, he decided she was indeed special. He was actually so impressed with Elizabeth that he didn't just give her money. He joined Channing Robertson on her board, publicly, loudly endorsing her. That support was meaningful. Elizabeth ultimately brought in $9 million during her so-called Series B funding round. Plus, she managed to tempt an impressive Silicon Valley finance veteran onto her executive team, Henry Mosley. He would serve as her CFO. So despite a lack of any working technology, things were looking good for Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. But gradually, things started to shift. Ed Koo, Elizabeth's chief engineer, was working hard to turn the Edison into a functional blood testing device. But the engineering and the chemistry were both extremely complicated, especially since Elizabeth insisted that Theranos testing could only use a tiny bit of blood For all the tests it had to do, she wanted a drop and was only willing to compromise with her scientists for a few drops. That was a big part of what made her device so different from traditional testing. After all, it wouldn't be nearly as disruptive to the industry if it used the same big vials as the old methods. They had to be different or they'd fail, or she'd fail, and that wasn't an option. Cool was trying. His team was as passionate about the Theranos mission as Elizabeth was. What scientist doesn't want to improve people's lives? But he could feel Elizabeth getting impatient. One night he was working in the lab late. It was quiet. When Elizabeth, still just 22, showed up and made a stark demand. Run the engineering department 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Koo was taken aback. Here he was working overtime, something everyone on his team did regularly, and yet Elizabeth wanted more. He tried to explain to her that this wasn't reasonable. His overworked engineers would burn out fast, even if they worked in shifts. But Elizabeth just stared at him with those big blue eyes, a steely, relentless glint flashing across their unblinking surface. Then she responded, I don't care. We can change people in and out. The company is all that matters. Ku never forgot those words. They sounded so callous. Elizabeth seemed to be focusing on her goals at the expense of other people. But the people she was dismissing were the scientists whose expertise she needed to make her idea a reality, to make those billions she'd promised investors from the beginning. It's odd that she'd risk alienating them like that. 
Perhaps she was starting to feel desperate. Soon she'd need yet more investment to keep Theranos going, and she'd probably started worrying that this time investors would ask when the company would be profitable, as in when it would have a working device it could use to bring in pharmaceutical contracts. Still, whatever desperation she may have started to feel about her lab, Elizabeth's harsh attitude still points to a disturbed mindset. Earlier, I spoke about the lack of conscientiousness that can stem from perfectionism, but the way Elizabeth was acting points to something more specific, narcissistic perfectionism. While perfectionists can often be hard on themselves and extremely self-critical, the personality research team at Dalhousie University describes the narcissistic perfectionist this way. Someone who is grandiose, has a high sense of entitlement, and holds unrealistic expectations of those around them. In other words, narcissistic perfectionists see themselves as special and as unique, and demand perfection of those around them in a very critical way. The problem Elizabeth was facing was that science is slow, and investors don't like slow, especially not when you've tempted them into backing your company with promises of huge profit. Her solution was classic narcissistic perfectionist. Blame her employees for the fact that the science wasn't moving fast enough, demand that they make it work, and in the meantime, keep making bigger and bigger promises to investors. As chief financial officer, Henry Mosley's job was to help Elizabeth make those promises and bring in investment. But as a veteran of the startup industry, he knew it was better not to overpromise. That's how you ended up with angry investors, which is why he was so pleased that he apparently didn't have to overpromise to make Theranos sound like a miracle investment. He just had to pass on the facts. Or the facts as Elizabeth started explaining them to him when he started at the company in 2006. She crowed that legal was reviewing six lucrative contracts with five major companies. And there were another 15 deals under negotiation, she added, looking starry-eyed at the prospect. Based on those contracts, Mosley calculated Theranos's projected revenue. The company could generate $120 to $300 million over the next 18 months and could eventually bring in $1.5 billion in revenues. They were huge numbers for such a young startup, which made it easy for Mosley to get capital from his thick Rolodex of wealthy families and foundations. By November of 2006, he'd helped Elizabeth bring in 32 million more investment dollars. Plus, those astronomical numbers helped win Theranos a valuation of $165 million. That's basically what financial experts thought the company was worth if it was up for sale. These were huge wins for any CFO. But... Mosley did have reservations about presenting the figures. He'd never seen any of the pharma contracts they were based on. Every time he asked Elizabeth for a gander, she brushed him off and told him they were under legal review. Still, he'd seen the Edison. He'd shown it to plenty of investors. And when he or they pricked their fingers and inserted their drop of blood into the device, it always spit out a result. If the tech worked so well at this early stage, there was no reason to think the pharma companies wouldn't want to get involved, and thus no reason to think the revenue wouldn't come through. Or so Mosley assumed. Until one day in November 2006, he got into a discussion with Seanuck Roy. 
Roy seemed hesitant to talk frankly at first, but then he blurted it out as if he was dying to get it off his chest. Developing the Edison was science and results took time, but it had only been three years. The machine they had was a basic prototype and often it didn't work. Mosley was shocked. How did it always seem to work when investors were around then? That's when Roy dropped a bombshell. The Edison performed for investors because they'd pre-recorded a test that had worked. And whenever investors came to see the device, they played that test on the device's screen, overriding any error messages. Mosley was horrified. Without his knowledge, he'd been presenting his investors with theater, not science. And if the device didn't work, the pharmaceutical contracts couldn't be real either. Could they? They weren't. Here's the truth. Elizabeth had talked with plenty of pharmaceutical companies, but none of them had ever agreed to pay Theranos a cent, much less entered a full-blown, long-term deal with the company. That afternoon, Mosley confronted her. He explained that you could pick the best possible numbers when you courted investors. You could make grand statements about future potential. That was all part of the game. But there were lines you couldn't cross. Lines that were moral, sure, but also legal. You couldn't lie. Elizabeth knew that he was right, that lying was a risk. But the lies were what it took to get to the finish line. She needed her invention to seem like it worked to get investors on board. Otherwise, she'd run out of money. Otherwise, her company would fail. Otherwise, she wouldn't be the next Steve Jobs or take the Holmes family back to paradise. And surely, if she pushed the lab hard enough, made them make it work, they'd catch up to all her claims, soon. In the meantime, she couldn't let the truth get out. Staring Mosley down, her eyes were cold, her face was hostile, and her voice was ice as she announced, Henry, you're not a team player. I think you should leave right now. Mosley was fired, and he was just the first. Coming up, Elizabeth's star rises, but her reign of terror intensifies. Now back to the story. Elizabeth Holmes never replaced Henry Mosley with another CFO. After firing him, she became the point person for all investor relations. She handled the presentations and the information that investors received. And it was working. It was working great. More and more important people joined her company, as investors, as board members, as employees. She was especially pleased when Avi Tavanian, formerly one of Steve Jobs' most trusted associates at Apple, joined the board at the tail end of 2006. People believed her when she told them how Theranos would change the world and make billions in the process. When she explained about the pharma contracts, which were just locked up with legal for now. When she showed the revenue projections based on those contracts coming through. Perhaps that was because she seemed to believe all of it herself. Dr. Dan Ariely, a psychologist and behavioral economist, commented on Elizabeth's psychology in the documentary Out for Blood. He said... This is all about wanting the world to be a certain way and basically being able to rationalize your actions to try and make it true. You have to want a certain thing, and then you should be able to kind of bend reality or rationalize things to allow you to do that. 
Ariely also explains that when you think what you're doing is right, it doesn't register as a lie, because it's for a good cause. In Elizabeth's case, she was changing a broken healthcare system and proving she was worthy of her glorious family name. The thing is, she was lying. She was still presenting those phony Edison demos, still talking about non-existent pharma contracts. In 2007, she actually did a trial with Pfizer. It was a test for Pfizer to assess whether the device might be something they'd be interested in using. They used the Edison to test the blood of cancer patients. But Pfizer wasn't impressed with the machine's capabilities. The trial never led to any lucrative deals. Nor did the talks Elizabeth had with any other pharma company. And eventually, more people started to question what was going on. In late 2007, Avi Tavanian started looking past Elizabeth's rhetoric and promises and digging into the company's financials. He wanted to see the pharma contracts. He wanted to see the revenue those contracts were supposedly poised to bring in. He was also concerned by the turnover within the company, including the departure of Mosley. But Elizabeth seemed to be stonewalling him. She was always charming, always amiable with her board, but she was evasive. So finally, Tavanian took his concerns to Don Lucas, the chairman of the board. He suggested that Elizabeth wasn't leading the company properly, that Theranos needed someone more seasoned at the helm, someone who could deliver on the company's promises. But Lucas balked. By now, Elizabeth had lunch at his house every Sunday. They weren't just business associates. They were friends. He'd spent years listening to her wax rhapsodic about her vision for Theranos. He wasn't about to take that away from her. After all, he'd never sensed she was lying about anything she said to him. He told Tavanian that he just didn't get it. If he didn't trust Elizabeth, he should resign from the board. So Tavanian did just that. It wasn't the end of the dissent, though. Unfortunately for Elizabeth, in March 2008, several Theranos employees went to Lucas. It was an even more egregious rebellion than Tavanian's. They explained that they too were concerned Elizabeth's revenue projections were completely unrealistic, considering the still unfinished state of the Edison. There couldn't be any pharma contracts because they knew the device didn't work. However convincing Elizabeth was when she said they were well on their way to full functionality, there was no getting around that fact. This time, for all his loyalty to Elizabeth, Lucas took the matter to the board, and they decided to do what Avi had suggested months before, remove Elizabeth as CEO. But 24-year-old Elizabeth walked into that boardroom, she heard the verdict, and then she started to talk. She admitted she wasn't always adequately responsive. She wasn't always transparent. She regretted all that, she promised, but she cared so much about making Theranos a success. She was the person to make this company work. She would be better. If they changed their mind, they wouldn't regret it. The board stared into her unblinking blue eyes, that pale, serious face, which just didn't look like it was lying. Lucas thought of Charles Fleischman, of the hospital named after Elizabeth's family. She had entrepreneurship in her blood. The board agreed. They would give Elizabeth another chance. The first thing she did with that second chance? Fire the employees who'd gone to the board with their concerns, who'd tattled and gotten in the way of her vision. 
anyone who risked the success of Theranos had to go. Unfortunately, it was an expense to keep hiring and firing scientists, not to mention those ongoing astronomical costs of running a development lab full of expensive engineering gadgets and chemical ingredients. As Elizabeth fielded insurrections left and right, she was also burning through money. And without the money from pharma companies ever materializing, by 2009, she was getting desperate for cash once again. She tried the Valley's preeminent venture capital firms, doing the rounds at their Sand Hill Road offices. She tried the firms specializing in medical tech, but they weren't interested. Before taking the plunge, they wanted peer-reviewed demonstrations of the Edison's capabilities, or at least clear explanations of the tech. Elizabeth turned up her nose at those reasonable requests. They were trade secrets. She couldn't possibly share them. But no matter, she'd just turn back to where she got her start, private investors, or rather, one particular private investor. Sonny Balwani made a boatload of money selling a software company during the 90s dot-com boom, and now the 45-year-old wanted to get involved with a new project, very involved. He agreed to personally loan Theranos $20 million and come on board as the chief operating officer. For Elizabeth, this was almost a miracle. With $20 million more dollars in her pocket and an experienced partner who was committed to her vision for Theranos, she knew she'd finally get her tech up to speed with her sales pitch. Sonny's involvement would launch a new era for the company, a bigger, better era. The era where she actually took the Edison to market and finally started bringing in the profits she'd dreamed about since she was a little girl. Pretty soon, it looked like that was exactly what was happening. In 2010, Theranos' valuation hit $1 billion. Then it went up and up and up. Elizabeth appeared on the cover of Forbes, Fortune. She graced the pages of The New Yorker, the New York Times style section. She'd done it. She'd shown the whole world she was special, worthy of the home's name, better than her ancestors even. But the thing is, this era began with yet another lie. A lie about what exactly Sonny and Elizabeth's relationship was. They weren't just colleagues with a shared vision. They were also dating, which seems trivial compared to all the other lies Elizabeth had told over the years, but it definitely made things more complicated. And complicated isn't what Theranos needed. Complicated muddies the waters, dulls the shine of a seemingly pristine story. Complicated leads to scandals, to betrayals, to headlines. Elizabeth Holmes had been out for blood for years. But when the truth finally came out, it was gonna be a bloodbath. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with our second episode on Elizabeth Holmes. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic. 
with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Nora Battelle, edited by Joel Callen, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. <laughs> 